Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, plastic or paper, we look into Canada's single-use plastics ban, which takes effect today, and what's causing British Columbians to move out of the province. Is it a mere blip, or are we repeating the 1990s again? And we continue our year-in-review series from the ongoing Hockey Canada controversy to show how Itani's contract to the Saudi takeover of golf. Rob Bay joins us as we talk about the year in sports. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. It's Wednesday, December 20th. Welcome to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Wednesday. Let's get right to our top story today. BC Retail is looking a little different because of new government rules on single-use plastics. Businesses cannot give out manufacture or import plastic-based checkout bags, cutleries, cutlery and straws under federal laws across the country. BC has also rolled out new regulations prohibiting food service providers from offering plastic items such as utensils, napkins and lids. Some single-use items can only be given upon request or at a self-service station, such as utensils, stir sticks, straws, and lids. Uh, well, our next guest knows a few things about getting away from single-use plastics. Uh, Brennan Leeds is the CEO of Sophie Products, a company that makes paper products like straws to cups to cup carriers. Uh, Brandon, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, your thoughts uh, on this day? How how big of a day is it for you and, and your company? Uh, we're actually seeing uh, a ton of inbounds uh, from local coffee shops, restaurants, just looking to learn more about our products and how they can make the switch away from single-use plastic. Uh, and for our audience, walk me through how your company started and the kind of service you provide. So we started in 2019. Uh, it was actually due to a, a bad experience with a paper straw, as everyone has experienced by now. Um, and my brother and myself decided to try to make the best paper straw in the world. And we came up after 12 months with a straw that doesn't get soggy, doesn't taste like paper, doesn't fall apart. Um, and then from there, we thought, how could we apply that to the cup and the lid? And after four years of development, we came up with a all-in-one cup that features a built-in lid. So you fold um, four flaps on our cold cup, three flaps on our hot cup, um, and it creates a a lid for you to either drink out of or put a straw in, and it's 100% plastic-free and one skew. Um, So we're really just looking to provide products that make it as easy as possible um, for businesses to be sustainable while also providing similar experiences to the products they've used for the last uh, 30 plus years. Um, now, are you, so that you're offering these services now, are you selling your product obviously to, to a variety of, of businesses? What's it been like the last few months in regards to, you know, just sales and just the, the broader conversation with, with today coming? Yeah, I think in the last few months, um, obviously the single use plastic regulations have, definitely been making their way in the news. Um, So it's definitely, uh, whether it's been positive or negative, it's been top of mind for everyone. And I think that has also really helped in terms of providing enough time for people to, for businesses to get ready to make the switch to uh, alternative products for single-use plastic. So we're seeing almost daily companies reaching out to us uh, about our solutions and how they can replace a lot of the single-use plastic that they're using. So uh, you've moved beyond the straw as well in regards to offering those products? Uh, Yes, that's correct. Um, What kind of questions are businesses asking? I'm very curious in regards. Is Is it just a cost issue? Is it about product? Uh, is it about pro- uh, the material you're using? Give me a sense of what types of conversations you're having as these companies are now made, uh, you know, required to make that change. There's still um, a lot of confusion. Uh, I think on the the federal level 
and the provincial level, because especially in Vancouver, where there's uh, bylaws that are even narrower than the federal regulations, um, it provides a little bit of difficulty for businesses to navigate, uh, okay, on the federal level, these products are being banned. On the provincial level, even more products are being banned. How do I navigate that? So we're getting a lot of questions around what types of products are being banned, what types of materials are being banned, um, especially it turns out that uh, compostable products mm-hmm. have been banned, biodegradable plastic products have been banned, but certain plastic items themselves have not been banned. So we're seeing businesses that were trying to be eco-friendly and uh, using compostable plastic products, which aren't actually eco-friendly. Um, but now they have to find another solution for that. And businesses that are using plastic aren't necessarily uh, having to switch away. So th- there's a lot of uh, confusion around which types of products people can use. And I just suggest that they get educated on that and go to the government's websites on the provincial level and the federal level uh, on our website as well. We have a guide for them uh, to navigate these laws as well. Um, in regards to um, cutlery, uh, stir sticks, straws, um, are they good products in your mind? I mean, I, uh, I would agree with you. There is the occasional straw that I've used that uh, I just go, you know, maybe I'll just grab two of them because one of them is going to get very soggy and not usable, which kind of, uh, you know, that's not the purpose. You shouldn't be grabbing two straws. You should be just relying on the one. Uh, generally, the products that are out there, I know you said you, you, your company was created based on poor experience with the straw. Generally, the products you're seeing out there, are they pretty good or are they still need of um, perhaps more enhancement and more work? That's a great question. It seems like when people think sustainability and sustainable products, immediately comes to mind uh, poor product experience and higher cost. And as you've mentioned, you've had those experiences, as most people have, and it wasn't a pleasant experience. And that just puts a bad taste in your mouth for products that are supposed to be good for the environment. Um, So that's why, as a business, we've really focused on how we can make products that give people the same experience and also keeping costs top of mind because we want to make sustainability accessible to pretty much everyone and costs shouldn't really be associated with that as, as much as possible. Um, it's, it's tough. Like you said, we've seen a lot of products that have fallen flat on the customer experience side, um, but our products, uh, we've worked really hard to, to make sure that the straw just provides its exact purpose and it's a straw. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Brandon Leeds. He's the CEO of Sophie Products. Uh, that's a company that makes uh, straws, paper straws, paper cups, and cup carriers as well uh, in preparation for a day like today, which where uh, in, here in Canada there's been a nationwide single-use plastics ban, which takes into effect uh, today. Well, before the break, uh, Brandon, you said you had a poor experience with the paper straw and uh, you were inspired to make a better one. Uh, did you have any uh, previous experience in this sector of the economy at all, or was it just that poor experience that led you to think, you know, there's got to be a better way? So my brother uh, has a product experience. Uh, he has a product background. He's come up with products uh, his whole life, had Kickstarter campaigns, and he was the one that experienced the first paper straw of his in early 2019, late 2018, with a milkshake. And he couldn't even drink the milkshake because the paper straw completely collapsed. Um, And we've always been pretty eco-conscious. So that's why we spent the next 6 to 12 months kind of looking at the the manufacturing process, how paper straws are made, the types of materials that go into it. And we redeveloped um, the whole process. He has a lot of expertise in that area um, and also the quality of materials that we're using. No one else is, is using the same. And... Through that process, we were able to develop um, the best paper straw, and um, we use a, a food-grade coating on the outside so you don't get that dry, papery taste, and you'll really not find uh, any other straw out there like it. Um, was it was it expensive to come up with that prototype? I'm just curious. Was like, does it, I'm, I'm, I have no idea what the cost would be for something like that. Is it expensive to, to start up something like that? 
Uh, it's not necessarily expensive. There's definitely a lot of prototypes that we had to go through. I, our all-in-one cup that has the built-in lid, years to develop and hundreds and hundreds of prototypes. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily the cost as it is so much the, the time that goes into it. Do you think the policy is the right one, or do you think more needs to be done, or is it going too quickly in your mind, the federal policy? I definitely don't think it's going too quickly. There's already been uh, a couple years of notice. Um, I I do think it could come faster, but with any sort of regulation, it takes time. Um, Canada has set a goal of... Um, to eliminate single-use plastic by 2030. And so that, I think, gives people plenty of time for them to adjust and get in the mindset of this isn't just uh, a one-stop shop where we're at, that there's going to be multiple steps forward over the next years to get towards this zero-waste goal. And it's something that people should keep in mind on how they can continue to reduce their, their footprint, especially with single-use plastic. Now, you have federal regulations, you have provincial regulations as well, and I think, in fact, they strengthen even more on the provincial side, and then you have municipal regulations as well in communities like Vancouver and Victoria. These inconsistencies, how much of an impact is that having between three levels of government? It definitely makes it challenging for the business owners. Uh, I mean, it even makes it challenging for us on how we can educate people on, on these regulations. Um, it's difficult. That's why we decided to do the homework for everyone and come up with a all-encompassing single-use plastic guide that's on our website to help local businesses easily navigate all of these different regulations within 30 seconds because uh, it's definitely a headache. It took us plenty of time to come through uh, and, and research all of those, but... Um, It'd be great to see if every province and even on a federal level, if everyone could unite. But we know at this point that that's not going to be possible in the near future. Um, so I just I just hope that everyone continues to educate themselves on, on the regulations. Uh, and, and, I, and I was just thinking, I was looking through some of the regulations and, and the real-world impacts. Even that plastic sushi grass that you have that, I guess, separates the actual su- sushi from... The wasabi, even that technically is plastic, so that's single use. I mean, even those types of things you're not going to see anymore moving forward for those who who, uh, who buy sushi or take out sushi. Yeah, yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, I, I was surprised to see that as well. To be honest, I uh, I had forgotten about those things. I, I can't even remember the last time I saw one, but. Uh, it's nice to see that they're getting pretty specific with their regulations and not allowing things like that to fall through the cracks. Um, because with some of these regulations, as we've seen, people still find ways within the loopholes. Um, for example, on the federal level, um, you can use single, a single-use straw if it's able to go through 100 washes in a household dishwasher. Mm-hmm. And so now people are looking at that, oh, my plastic straw is able to withstand 100 washes in a dishwasher. It must be reusable. But obviously, that's not the intention of the federal regulation. So it's nice to see that on a provincial level, um, they're, they're looking at these specific items and providing regulations for those certain things um, because they will be taken advantage of if it's not in there. Uh, if people want to learn more about products in regards to the regulations, uh, where's, what's your website? Where can they get that information? Our, our website is sophieproducts.com, S-O-F-I products.com, and our single-use plastic guide is available directly on our homepage. Brandon, thank you so much. If we don't speak uh, prior to the new year, uh, Merry Christmas to you and Happy New Year to you. Yep, yep, same to you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, on the back of 12 months, that's uh, Saudi Arabia show up in every uh, every corner of the uh, sporting world uh, to uh, the Hockey Canada controversy to Shohei, Shohei Otani, uh, Otani's contract. Um, there's been a lot happening in the sports world in the last year or so. We're continuing with our year in review series. Joining me now is Rob Fay, he's a CKNW weekend morning host and, of course, a longtime sportscaster here uh, in British Columbia. Rob, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Jess. Lots to talk about the sporting world uh, in, in regards to the stories that have been out there. And I think we maybe should start uh, uh, certainly here in Canada. Now, the federal government has launched a commission to help improve Canada's sporting culture, promote safe sports as well, uh, and tackle some of the challenges within within the system. This, of course, is happening alongside um, probably the last 18 months. It started back in 2022, but certainly continued into 2023 in regards to the controversy and outrage around Hockey Canada uh, that is still ongoing. Uh, Your thoughts, first and foremost, on this first story. Do you expect much from this commission to help improve sporting culture uh, in our country? I do. I I think, you know, if you've got the right people in place, then you can make this tectonic-like shift. you got to remember the CEO of Hockey Canada and their entire board stepped down. And the the team that's going to take this over is obviously going to have a bunch of challenges ahead. But I think that's what we needed. I think we needed Hockey Canada's brass to kind of go away. And really, even though the reputation of the brand is in tatters right now, a couple of gold medals, a new face, a new direction, and some insight from actual Canadians that are not just within this bubble of the board, I think would probably be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, and that's with Hockey Canada. In regards to this uh, commission that was um, launched by uh, Sport Minister Carla Qualtro, MP uh, for Delta there, and this is all in regards to amateur sport, in regards to how athletes have been treated, how they're trained. Um, what do you think has gone wrong in our culture that you've had so many athletes over so many years complaining about, and it's not just one particular sport, hockey has its challenges, but this has been ongoing for, from a variety of sports uh, to the point where this country, this our parliament has had to launch a commission to help improve our sporting culture when it comes to our, our, our amateur sports and how those amateur sports are also governed. Well, you know, it's a great question because I think a lot of sports at the amateur level are kind of at the crossroads between the old guard and the old thought process, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, just rub it and it'll get better. And a new generation and a new thought process, especially in hockey, when it comes to hazing, when it comes to hitting, when Mm -hmm. it comes to fighting. I think there's just so many different things that are at this conventional crossroads. So I would like to think that the uh, those who wanted to advance the game and keep their kids safe are starting to win this battle. But it's not without, um, I guess, the last hurrah of those who still feel that the game should be played, you know, with intimidation, those, you know, with violence in some cases. Mm -hmm. And in the worst case scenario, even some, uh, you know, sexual, I guess you would say misconduct, which is still a part of the game at the amateur level, which breaks my heart. But it's not just hockey jazz. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of different amateur sports. Yeah. Um, An issue of hockey. I I, um, did a story on this. We did a segment on this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, where there's an author uh, out of the University of Las Vegas talking about hockey from the amateur level uh, at the junior level, uh, even at the minor level, all the way to the NHL and how much hockey has changed right up to the NHL, many more American teams, of course. Um, And I don't want to pick on hockey because I think different sports, as you say, do have their challenges. How would you uh, gauge the health of hockey? And, And I don't mean just by the NHL and professional athletes, but I'm just talking about even at the minor level, at the junior level, is it at a healthy place in regards to just the core issue of our love of hockey and whether or not it's, it's the, the, the system itself is providing the fun that should be there for, for kids at the same time, allowing some of these more elite athletes to continue to work through the system and, 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 and sort, sort of reach their full potential as well? Yeah, I think the love for hockey is always going to be there. I mean, it's a part of our DNA as Canadians, but there are still challenges at the business level. I mean, you think of the British Columbia Hockey League who separated from Hockey Canada and they're going to take their own road. And that comes with some financial challenges. And there's a lot of different things here that are still gray area and people are kind of figuring it out as they go. But the one thing that I can say, and I think a lot of people that I talk to at the amateur level have said to me is the game is better now. 
they don't worry about the hits. There's no place in hockey for goons anymore. Maybe the beer league hockey's out at Burnaby Lakes. Uh, sorry, guys, to all the goons out there. <laughs> but the reality is, is the game is faster, it's quicker, and now people feel that they can play this game because they're not going to get their head buried in a board. So I, I think we're getting there, but probably slower than some people wanted. And when you see a freak injury, um, it really does make you reminisce about where the game was and where it's on its way to going. Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, make the switch over to baseball just for a second. Um, the negotiations for uh, Shohei Otani were just interesting to watch on social media. Uh, he eventually of, course, eventually, of course, signed with the Los Angeles Dodgers. $700 million was the contract. And, you know, remember, uh, before this was all announced, people thought he was in Toronto. He's going to sign with the Blue Jays. Speak to me about this deal, because a lot of the payments, to my understanding, are deferred. He's not getting paid right away. In fact, a good chunk of his career will be over before he even remotely starts getting paid. Talk to me about the $700 million. So how it breaks down is 680 of that 700 million is deferred, leaving Shohei just 2 million, I shouldn't say just, but leaving Shohei $2 million a year over the next 10 years. That means he's going to be making, uh, you know, some decent change by regular Joe standards. But when you see what's coming at the end of his contract, which is $68 million per year for the decade after that contract runs out, it's it's mind-boggling, and it's probably a problem for baseball. They didn't break any rules, Jazz. Like, the CBA's in place, and the Dodgers and the agents, they got creative. But I can't imagine the next time that baseball and the union gets together that this is going to be something that can move forward. I mean, they are able to save a boatload of money on their luxury tax due to the Dodgers. And <clears> if you think about this, let's say Shohei Jazz lives in L.A. for the 10 years at the $2 million. He's only paying a little bit of a tax. Mm-hmm. If he moves to, say, Florida, or if he moves back to Japan, or he moves wherever, there's so much of that money that he'll end up saving on the back end of this that if he's patient, which obviously he's going to be, He's going to make way more money. And and I'll tell you this, Jazz, don't feel sorry for him with the $2 million. He will make tons of money per year uh, endorsement-wise, especially in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're right. Uh, what I find interesting is baseball, like a lot of sports, uh, is at a, at a crossroads in regards to TV money. Everything is driven uh, in regards to salaries when it comes to TV money. TV is being challenged. You have regional sports networks now either going bankrupt or not um, at a healthy place. I don't know what the TV market will look like 10 years from now. Nobody really does. Um, is baseball healthy in your mind? I mean, I don't even know if they can. They should be able to afford that salary 10, 15 years from now. It's not going anywhere. But it's a different TV market. It's not paying as much. Um, uh, the, list, the viewership is different now with, with streaming and everything else. But in regards to the core business of baseball, it is a slower sport. Is it at a healthy place, do you think? Is, is it still viewed... Um, as a hip sport compared to, let's say, basketball or uh, soccer internationally? Well, hip, no, but I would say it definitely is making strides with the pitch clock, which, of course, condensed games by 26 minutes on average this year. Hmm. That is a huge difference, Jazz, to get under the three-hour per game mark. That's Mm -hmm. a big deal for baseball, and I think the pitch clock's here to stay. The thing that I will say, and, and I think, you got to give your tip of the cap to baseball is they branched out with YouTube. They did their games live on YouTube. They did their games on Apple TV. So they see the future and they understand where it's going. So conventional TV, geographic TV, regional TV, I think that's going to go the way of the Dodo bird in the next 15 to 20 years. But I think baseball was right on top of it saying, let's begin the process of establishing ourselves on this medium because the numbers on it were decent. But by the time that the other options taken away, they will have, planted roots of 10 to 15 years, which I think is going to serve baseball very well in the future. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Rob Fay. Of course, he's a CKNW Weekend Morning host and a longtime sportscaster. We're talking about the year in sports. Rob, um, let's talk about something I probably wouldn't have uh, uh, discussed a year ago even, and that's Saudi Arabia. Uh, it, as a country, and through its uh, public investment fund, that's all the money they make through petroleum, they put it into a, a global fund, and they've been investing like crazy uh, in a lot of sporting events, golf is the first one, Live Golf, which potentially may be taking over the PGA. You've got them uh, hosting tennis events, uh, soccer. They've, of course, uh, hired Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo for one of their soccer team clubs. They're looking at uh, investing in the Indian Cricket League. They have F1 racing as well. What is going on? 
Well, I mean, if you want to take the glass half angry approach, sports washing, and this is usually, I guess the easiest way to describe it, Jazz, is it's pretty much a distraction technique to divert attention away from rather, you know, serious human rights abuses, corruption, and just general wrongdoing. And sometimes by associating yourself with popular sports events or teams or individuals, you can actually manipulate public perception and create a positive image. And that, I think, is a part of this problem that a lot of teams, I have a friend who's a a Newcastle fan, a a soccer fan, a diehard Newcastle fan, and he feels a little bit torn because his team got purchased by a Saudi Arabia, you know, organization. And now he knows that that and he calls it blood money. I don't know if I would go that far, but it is definitely a challenge morally when you know that the country or the organization that is now invested in your league and in your team and in some instances, your players uh, are doing business with a, a a country that doesn't have the best track record when it comes to human rights, when it comes to LGBTQ rights, women's rights. I mean, they don't have good track record with anything, and yet now they're a pretty big player in the sports scene. And, and you know, the dollars we're talking about are just astronomical. Was it one Spanish golfer was offered $300 million, $300 million uh, to play uh, in the Live Golf uh, League? Well, you've got Sergio over there. You've got Phil over there. Those are the two long-in-the-tooth golfers that, uh, you know, of course, have been associated with the PGA for years. Mm-hmm. But even John Rahm, the latest to go over, the number three ranked golfer in the world, the defending Masters champion, $500 million. Oh, wow. I mean, that's more than he could make in five years if he won every PGA Tour tournament <laughs> that is available to him. So I don't understand how a golfer can say no to this, and I don't know how the PGA is going to be able to fend it off. And they've got just over a week to figure out if they're truly going to get a bed with Liv. And I'll tell you what, if I'm the PGA, I'm I'm nervous because they're gaining steam, not losing it. Wow. Well, let's move on to another sport, and that's uh, basketball. Uh, we, of course, were at one time home to the Vancouver Grizzlies, uh, and every time there's talk of expansion, Vancouver's name gets thrown in. Uh, we are expecting two teams to be um, uh, named as the NBA's two newest franchises after the NBA season uh, in 2024. Uh, the numbers, the names, everybody's throwing around most likely is Seattle uh, and Las Vegas. What are your thoughts on on, on a Vancouver, a chance of Vancouver perhaps landing a team, perhaps not this time, but the, the, the next expansion announcement? Uh, boy, I don't know. I, I, I'm torn about this because would I like to see the NBA back in Vancouver? Absolutely. I covered it when they were here in the late 90s, but... Mm-hmm. I I can tell you this, Las Vegas and Seattle are the two locks, the two no-brainers. I mean, Seattle's got a beautiful stadium and a history. Everybody wants to get Las Vegas right now. But, Jazz, i got to be honest. If I'm I'm the NBA right now, I'm looking at Mexico. I'm looking at Asia. I'm looking at a, a number of different countries. I mean, there's already a team in Canada, and they might not think that Montreal is a bad idea either. So in the land of who's next, I would say that Vancouver might be in the top 10, mm-hmm. but I don't put them as an heir apparent to be, you know, the next favorite to get a team. What's a team cost today? $4 billion? I mean, wow. realistically, I mean, if you think of Phoenix, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, I mean, you think of what uh, even Mark Cuban sold his share in the Dallas Mavericks not long ago, a couple of weeks ago. We're talking three and a half billion dollars for his equity in the Mavericks so realistically if there's a Canadian out there that's going to go and you know significantly get into the NBA and even if he or she went 50 percent they're still looking at a two two and a half billion dollar investment and you know looking at the wealthiest Canadians from this year's list there's not a lot of names out there that are uh you know sportsy if you will I mean Chip Wilson was all of a sudden you're going to play it at uh, the arena that's got a bunch of yoga and Lululemon, I don't know what you do. I, I just don't see the perfect fit because I don't know if there's an ownership group and uh, people out there with a price tag that could get this city done in quick matter. Yeah, I think that that's uh, you need somebody with deep pockets. There's only so many Jimmy Pattisons, and he's he's busy with other things. That's for sure. Uh, we got yeah. about a minute left, but quickly, uh, the most Google topic uh, we had the segment on the most Google topic. Um, here in BC last week, uh, and the number one topic was women's soccer uh, here in British Columbia. Um, talk to me a little bit about just the women's team here in Canada, more importantly, just women's sports, particularly professional sports. Not only are you seeing leagues um, uh, starting, but their valuations are going up as well. 
Yeah, that's the good side of the coin. And I think the Canadian team, because they've been so good for so long, is a large part of that reason. But Jazz, knowing that I only have a couple of seconds here, the reason it's Googled so much is the struggle that they had, their failure on the world tour this year, Mm -hmm. uh, and more importantly, uh, Christine Sinclair finally calling it quits. I mean, there were so many stories. But realistically, when you think of the women and the challenges that they faced getting uh, equal pay and, and, and the equity that came from abroad, Uh, that is no surprise that they're on that list as the most searched Canadian team. Uh, Rob, as always, this segment always moves very way too quickly. I really appreciate your time. If I don't speak to you, my friend, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you. To you and your staff as well, Jazz. Thank you. Hey, welcome back to the show. For just joining us, we were speaking to Rob Fay as part of our Year in Review series, and today was the Year in Sports, and uh, give us a call on the buzz line. We'd love to hear from you in regards to what your favorite sporting uh, moment was this year. We talked a little bit about uh, the transition and change at Hockey Canada. We talked about the commission into sports, amateur sports in this country that is starting up. Uh, we also talk about, of course, uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, its sport wa- sports washing and the fact that not only is it uh, wanting to take over of golf, but think about uh, F1 sports, think about um, soccer, uh, think about tennis. I mean, it goes on and on. The dollars are endless. So we talked a little bit about that. We talked about women's soccer uh, as well. We talked NBA expansion into Las Vegas and Seattle. And um, the cost of these franchises is significant now. You know, think about 25 years ago, you could probably get a franchise for a couple hundred million dollars. Today, the Phoenix Suns, as Rob said, not too long ago, what, four or five months ago, sold for about three and a half billion dollars. So it gives you an idea of the dollars we're talking about here. But give us a call on the buzz line. We'd love to hear from you. What's your sporting event of the year 604-331-2899 well our next guest knows a few things about sports but that's not what we're going to talk about uh, Ruby Kalo is the minister of housing and uh, he had one time represented Canada in field hockey uh, at I think it's one maybe two Olympics uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about intermig- intermig- interprovincial migration um, and the fact that BC's lost a few folks in the last little while joining me now of course is Mr. Kalo Ravi Kalo minister of housing minister thank you for joining us Hey, Jazz. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the story of the last 24 hours uh, or so. BC, it says, has recorded its largest period of interprovincial migration losses in 20 years with more than 12,000 people moving elsewhere in Canada since July of 2022. Uh, And from July to September of 2023, BC lost a net 4,600 people. Uh, Your thoughts on these two numbers? Well, Jazz, uh, I think what's important with those numbers is overall, mm-hmm. last quarter, we had 67,000 net new people come to B.C. So, yes, you can look at the number and say some people from B.C. left other provinces. But overall, we have a net of 67,000 people that came to B.C. last quarter. That's the largest increase in population since 1961. And so... Um, you know, I appreciate that we have some people, maybe they came to B.C., they realized that there's opportunities in another province, and they moved. Mm-hmm. But overall, we have no challenge recruiting people to come to British Columbia. People are coming. Uh, there's opportunities here, and they're coming. The challenge I think we have collectively is when you welcome 67,000 people, last year we set a record of people coming. The mm-hmm. year before that we set a record, is how do we ensure that we're able to you know, have the housing for them, have the other support that they need for both them to be successful as well as the people that live here to be successful. Yeah. No, you raise a very good point. Uh, but, you know, what, what I would say to that is it, it, it is concerning in, in one aspect for me. Uh, Canada is a place that immigrants want to emigrate to. Uh, we see that and and they are coming to Canada. They are coming to British Columbia. That I understand. It is concerning that those that live here, uh, have potential work here, uh, have family and friends here, don't always want to leave. Uh, one could argue they're going because of greater opportunity. Perhaps it's a job, but it's also could be partially due to frustration, the cost of living in Vancouver, the lack of housing in this city. Perhaps it's just dealing with the rush hours of Vancouver. I don't know. But it is concerning that those who have uh, experience here, uh, came here, perhaps raised here, but just, you know what, I'm walking away, I'm not happy. Isn't that somewhat concerning still? Oh, no, Jazz. I think all the points you've made there are, are very, very valid points. And quite frankly, that's what concerns me the most. Uh, I hear from people who are like, hey, I, I might have to move. 
Uh, I wanted to raise my kids in the neighborhood I grew up in. I just can't see that as a possibility. Uh, housing is expensive. I can't find a place that's affordable. That is a major concern for us. If you look at all the changes that we made uh, this fall in particular around housing, that is the core of what we're trying to address because, uh, you know, you nailed it with, you, with, the, with the way you framed it, which is it, people start getting to the point where they're like, I, I want to live here, I love this place, but I can't afford it. We have a major challenge, and that's an economic challenge and a societal challenge as well. So that's why the housing piece is so important. But mm-hmm. on top of that, uh, what I would say, Jazz, is, again, we have no shortage of people wanting to come to British Columbia. The numbers are uh, uh, significant. Uh, and for what us, what's really important for us is how do we ensure that we have the housing to keep people here to ensure their economy continues to grow, and and that is a big that is a big concern of mine. When do you think your policies in regards to housing and and it's a tough question to answer, but when do you think we're going to see um, not just not action, but more so just the fruits of this legislation? Is it a it's it a three or five year project, or do you think we'll see um, uh, some sort of uh, uh, you know some litmus some, some sort of test something that says hey? We are now seeing greater growth in housing because of this, this this legislation. Is this something we're going to take five years to wait for, or do you think you can see it quicker than that? Well, I think you nailed it, which is housing. Uh, nothing is quick about housing. Housing mm-hmm. takes time, and the policy takes time. I think some of the uh, policies, we're already starting to see impact. We know from the speculation and vacancy tax, which is essentially a tax on people who own a home but just choose to keep it empty, uh, is bringing units back into the market. We know already with the short-term rental legislation, it's already starting to have an impact. Both people are starting to sell if they don't want to be in the uh, the rental game. But also, I know that a lot of these properties are starting to come on the market for rental. I know because every time people see it, they tag me on posts on Facebook and on Twitter saying, look, it's working. So, uh, you know, I think that we're already starting to see the impact. The true impact of that will start in May when the principal residence requirement kicks in. The other changes, we're already starting to see some impacts of that as well. I I know some developments have been able to get through a little bit quicker. Uh, Most of the policies come into place in May and June next year, and then the market needs to respond from that. But I think that uh, all the changes we've made, I do believe, are going to make a major difference in us getting housing online faster. But we have headwinds, and I know you've covered it. Uh, interest rates are a challenge. Uh, we have continued to see record numbers of people coming to British Columbia. Costs of products are still high. And so we have headwinds, but I believe BC is the best position to address the housing crisis because of the changes we've made. We are going to do a year in review in real estate uh, tomorrow on this show uh, at 4 o'clock. My final question to you, Minister. Uh, Obviously, certain mayors um, feel this is a one-size-fits-all. We've had uh, Langley Township Mayor Eric Woodward on the show. Uh, Brenda Locke, I believe, has expressed those concerns. I know um, the City of Richmond has put uh, documentation together that also expresses that concern that our communities are unique for a variety of reasons. Uh, and this one size fit all doesn't doesn't um, doesn't work for our communities at this moment. Uh, will that require further negotiation from you and your ministry to deal with those respective communities? Because there are lots of opportunities to build in Langley Township, in Surrey's, and the Richmonds as well. Uh, will that require further negotiation for you um, in the new year? Well, certainly every community has its own level of uniqueness. What's not unique to every community in this province is a housing challenge. Uh, Any community, every community has young people who are thinking about leaving this province, who can't afford to live here. Uh, And so there's nothing unique about the housing crisis community to community. Everyone is struggling with it. Uh, I think it's important to note that the changes we've made are about creating a new floor. We're saying as of right, three to four units on single-family lots. We're saying as of right around transit. But we're going to need more solutions than that, Jazz, to address the challenges that we have in front of us. And communities, mayors, local governments, that's where they're going to play an important role. They're going to need to update their official community plans. They're going to have to engage with their communities on what that looks like. 
so there, I wouldn't say it's a negotiation, but if there's issues that arise, we'll certainly look to work with them to address them. Well, Minister, uh, let's get you in studio here sometime in January uh, after the holidays, uh, and we can have an extensive conversation. I know the Premier was in here a couple of weeks ago. Appreciate his time. We'll look to have, love to have you in as well, and we can have a longer conversation on a very, very important file, especially when it comes to, to, come, comes to housing. Uh, we probably won't speak until then, so Merry Christmas to you, uh, and Happy New Year to you and your family. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Jazz. Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year's to everybody listening. Uh, wishing everybody the best next year. I'm not even sure what to call this next segment. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Twitter. We're going to talk a little about social media, but I think we should also talk a little bit about tech. It's it's just part of our life now, and there's no better person to talk about it uh, than Andy Brar, tech and the digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. And he's joining us in studio. Good to see you, Andy. Yeah, it's great to see you, Jazz. Yeah, it's been a while, but uh, there's lots to talk about. Uh, there was a bit of a mini tremor last week. Uh, I think it was centered around uh, Pemberton. And, you know, we were seeing tweets about, hey, did you, did you feel something here? in downtown Vancouver, and generally you go to social media, places like Earthquake Canada, uh, and but Earthquake Canada says that they're going to be off the site very quickly, and you know you would think that's such vital information that you want, uh, but they're taking themselves off uh, Twitter, now called X, of course. Uh, what, what are you hearing? Well, the, the interesting thing about that story was they announced it before we had that earthquake. Mm-hmm. And so then as soon as we had that earthquake, sure enough, they were tweeting about it. But what they said is moving on 2024 onwards, they're going to stop doing that. And they said it doesn't meet their criteria because if you remember Twitter in the early days, the most immediate tweet that someone would post, that's what you would see on your timeline. Mm-hmm. But everything has changed, especially, and I'd love that we still call it Twitter, by the I way. Know. That we don't, <laughs> I refuse to call X. it X. Oh yeah, God. it's such a bad brandy. Brutal. But like that's been Elon's dream for for years now. He's had this like fantasy about X dot com, mm-hmm. and so he's it's like his, the baby that he's always had, and he's trying to build it like twenty four years later. But it's changed. We all know that it's changed, and you don't see the most immediate tweets anymore. It's all based on an algorithm. Even if you uh, don't follow people, you might see theirs because it's a paid subscription now. So mm-hmm. the blue check used to be verified. That's gone. You have to pay for that. So you take all of those factors together, Earthquake Canada is like, you know what, we're not going to post on this. I think it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Like, how hard is it to make a tweet? Like, it's not that hard. No, no. But but that just shows you just how different Twitter has been with Elon Musk at the realm. This is a 17-year-old social media platform, but a lot's changed in this one year. Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk uh, said he's going to buy it, then try to get out of it, then was forced to buy it because of the comments he's made and, and, and legally was forced to buy it, overpaid for it, $40 yep. billion plus. Um, there's been talk that you know he may not be able to make upcoming payments, interest payments that have to be made. $1 billion. $1 billion. When, Do you know when that's due? I'm not sure when it's due, but it's going to be an annual interest payment. Yeah. And he's already said that the valuation of Twitter is probably now $20 billion. So in one year, he's wiped about $22 billion off the brand value for Twitter. And a lot of it's because he's alienated his advertisers. And of course, we know what he recently said about his advertisers. Yeah, t- Talia, let's, uh, let's listen to what he had to say. He was speaking at a conference uh, uh, with the New York Times, and he was being uh, in- interviewed by um, Andrew Ross Sorkin, a uh, business writer, reporter. And take a listen to Mr. Musk and his rather, what do you call it, dismissiveness of advertisers. Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. But go f- yourself. Is that clear? Uh, I hope it is. Well, that's one way to run your business. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got a feel for uh, tw- or Twitter CEO Linda Yaccarino? Yes. Because you can you imagine what she has to, the blowback that she has to do? Because she's an NBC executive with strong ties to the advertising industry. That's the reason why they brought her on board. Yeah. And then he goes, this is a problem about Elon Musk. He's very impatient and he's very impulsive. Like you mentioned, first he wanted to sit on the board of Twitter. Then somebody had tweeted, why don't you buy it? Then he started thinking, oh, yeah, maybe I'll start buying. I'll buy it. Then he wanted to you know, put an offer. Then he wanted to back out of it because he realized he's probably paying too much for it. And now look what he's doing. He's the CTO, the chief technology officer. 
But he, even though he has a CEO, he's still the boss because of things like that when he says yeah, things. What I find amazing is we're not talking about, you know, he's, he's telling off Joe's fish shop down the street. He's telling off the CEO of Disney, yep. uh, Apple, uh, and these major advertisers, which spend hundreds of million dollars on advertising, right? Um, I know he's laid off a lot of folks uh, at Twitter when he took over, right? Half. Half. Yeah. Maybe, maybe more than half. Yeah. Um, uh, it, you know, a lot of folks aren't on Twitter, but those that are, it is still the elites of government. Uh, it is still the elites of the corporate world, of the journalism world. It is where the broad narrative and discourse globally and locally occur, if you look at politics, yep. right? Um, where do you think this is all going? And you, you know, is there ever going to be a replacement to Twitter, or do you think we're just going to have to muddle through uh, the Musk era? Well, we have to remember there is a replacement. It's called Threads, uh, which Meta had opened up in July. It's yeah. basically the copycat of Twitter, and it was the fastest mo- uh, downloaded and user, you know, base ever. And that's because it was easy to migrate people from Instagram onto Threads. But mm-hmm. here's the thing: Twitter gets about two hundred and thirty-three million daily active users. Currently, Threads gets about ten million. Yeah. Now, if you talk to Mark Zuckerberg, he'll say, oh, we have 100 million an- or monthly users, but people aren't posting on threads. And there was other number. We used to talk about this when Elon was going to buy it. Everybody said, we're going to leave Twitter. There was Mastodon. There was, uh, what was the other ones? I, I almost forgot all of them. There's now. a few of them. Yeah. And it, it, what, I, what I find is there's a new one, uh, Blue Sky. Blue Sky. Which, yeah, that's right. uh, which I think has got potential. I think the ones, folks that started Twitter are now working on Blue Sky. But you know, my problem is, okay, you leave Twitter, well, then you're going to go to Mark Zuckerberg, who hasn't exactly let the yeah. world on fire with, uh, with Facebook. Um, what do you, where are we going, do you think, with social media? And what I mean by that is beyond uh, Elon Musk and his shenanigans, I also see um, this entire ecosystem uh, that is leading to, A, many school districts now in the U.S. suing these big tech companies. Yep. A lot of these lawyers that used to sue asbestos companies – uh, big uh, big uh, tobacco are now <laughs> on behalf of these school districts now starting to sue big tech yeah. because the impact social media is having on our children in regards to paying attention in school, body images, a lot of other issues. Um, I personally believe, you know, 20, 30 years now, when we look back at this era, it's not going to be a healthy place. No. And I don't think social media is a net positive in so many ways. I really, I really don't. Where do you see all of this going at the end of the day? I think right now, Jazz, we are in this technology-induced dark age. Because if you look at kids right now, they are addicted to social media. And if you ask them, they don't want to use the platform. But what keeps them there is all my friends are there. You know, I can't just leave because then I'm going to get FOMO, the fear of missing out. People are posting. I have to be on there. But it's making them depressed. It's causing anxiety. You know, even young girls, can you imagine being you know, on social media these days, and you're seeing all these filtered pictures. And not only that, boys too. You have, you're seeing a huge rise in steroid use amongst teenagers, mm-hmm. 20-something. When they're in their most developmental age, they're doing it because they're seeing all these things on TikTok and on Instagram, and they feel that they have to be, like, muscular and look like, you know, a Marvel uh, movie star. But it, it is it's really making them sad. And not only that, academically, mm-hmm. their academics performance in science, math, reading has all gone down as smartphone adoptions and social media use has gone up. Because at 2012, in 2012, 50% of students aged 12 to 17 mm-hmm. had a smartphone. 70% were on social media daily. Now, today, the average teenager spends five hours on social media per day. And they're not doing it out of school. They're doing it during school hours. And that's the big debate. Can you ban phones from schools? Do something like what what happens if you go to a comedy show where you have to put your phone into a pouch and you're not allowed to use it. That's the big discussion right now. When I was um, an MLA, it's one of the things I was looking at and wanting to introduce legislation. I was starting the work. We ended up not doing it. Um, But I wish we kind of had. And that's simply uh, school districts. Uh, all of them, you want, to, you want to bring down a hammer, but you want every school just to make sure they have a cell phone policy. Yeah. A lot of it's kind of wishy-washy, but you really want to focus them and force them to do so. And what I would have wanted to do is a bill that, A, forces them to do so, 
or be even tougher and say, can we in some capacity ban cell phones? The challenge is, you know, uh, Johnny might have a, an after-school job that he does need to, to, to keep that cell phone. Um, mom and dad may want to be in touch yeah. with their son or daughter at school. So you don't want to come down hard, but there has to be a, a significant change in how we treat cell phones and access to social media in our schools because I think it's impacting education. It's also impacting being present. I was at my son's basketball game last night and Burnaby's got a tournament. I looked at my phone twice just to make sure what was going on in the news. Yeah. I didn't need to. It's the evening. I'm, I'm coming back tomorrow. There was two young young guys in front of me. They must have been on their phone about 12 times during a basketball yeah. game too, right? So we're losing our ability as human beings to be present, right? Yeah. And, and that's part of the challenge. Um, lots of hype yeah. uh, right from the beginning in 2023. Um, some wonderful things that we saw in regards to what it can do. Uh, but more and more I look at it, uh, and I've used it a few times, just out of curiosity more than anything. Uh, what are your thoughts on AI? I, I know there's lots of potential for it, but it hasn't completely impressed me yet. It has its place, Jazz, you know, in, in certain fields, like in medical research, right? Yeah. Like you can take data sets and you can find patterns, right? And, and they, can, they can take an image scan and find issues because you're comparing it to all these other images. So there is a place for AI, but this whole thing about like chat GPT, if you start to use it, it's okay. You know, it, it was kind of interesting and we're only one year in. So we have to remember this is the worst AI is ever going to be. Mm-hmm. It's only going to get better. But here's the issue. Where is the AI data coming from? It's scraping data from the internet. And then they're trying to charge, you know, a monthly fee to use that. But they don't compensate all the other people where it's getting that data set from. And I think that's the the critical issue because if you're a company and you have this data and then something like ChatGPT comes in and just scrapes it and then they're trying to sell from based on your data, that's a big issue and that needs to be resolved. But AI came out, it's only been one year. Can you believe that? It was like November of last year. It's it turned up. It's turned out. You know, just uh, turned every industry upside down to yep. a certain degree. I mean, if you're a university professor, uh, did that student uh, whose essay you're grading did, did, did that person write it themselves? Yep. Right, yep. Uh, and that's part of it. And even news organizations, you know, if uh, AI is as you say, scraping all this information from a news story, is that news organization being compensated? No. Right now, they're not. No. Right. So, uh, a New York Times, I think, is putting together a consortium to to look into that issue. We just got Google to pay, I think, a hundred million dollars. Yes, a hundred million dollars to news organizations organizations moving forward in 2024 because of their data that's out there. Um, In regards to uh, the impact it's going to have, I mean, do you think the public will accept uh, copy, uh, whether it's a news story, uh, whether it's promotional jargon, uh, written things written by AI? Do you think we'll accept that? Or do you think that, wait a minute, I want a human being to be writing that? Well, you know, we all know what happened with the uh, Sports Illustrated, where they were trying, <laughs> they created fake profiles and yeah. then tried to use AI. That's the bad way to go with, through with it. Now, other, you know, websites are now using where they'll say assisted by AI. So they actually have a disclaimer that it's assisted. So you don't have a byline of a real writer. Now it's the AI and a human has interacted with it. The big question is, as a reader, do you want to read AI, you know, produce content? And I don't think people will. And I think that anything, images, anything that's been created by AI needs a watermark so that you know that this was AI generated. Because some of the photos are getting very realistic and it's causing some serious damage because people think that, you remember the, the picture of the Pope in, yes. that, in that puffed up jacket? I thought that was real. I yeah. legitimately, I'm like, wow, Pope's got some drip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was it was an AI generated image, and yeah. and I, like I said, we're one year in, and we're having a hard time knowing what is real and what is fake. They're now creating AI videos. Did you see that one where they had all the world leaders like Biden? They're all dancing, and there's Barack oh, Obama. Yes, yes, and that was all AI generated. That video. So yeah. you give it five years, the ability to con- create a song, uh, an artist. Yeah. Uh, and is that real? Would that be up for a Grammy or something like that, you know, or five, ten years a year? There are accounts now where they'll take, like, Johnny Cash's voice but then mash it up with, like, a Taylor Swift song. Yeah. And it sounds – and you're having a hard time knowing, is that real? And then the question is, like, who gets compensated for that? There was a, a song, I think it was Drake, or somebody made a, a fake Drake, and, that you know, everybody loved this song. And yeah. it was going to get nominated for a billboard, but then they're like, no, because it was AI-generated. Thanks for listening to the Jazz There's going to be a hit podcast. song created 
by a computer. Yeah, it's all going to go. This is the end. And there's not much you can do about it. And that's, it's it is truly a brave new world. And we're glad you're always available to walk us through and make sense for it. Make sense for us, Andy. I really appreciate it. If I don't see you, I do want to say this. Thank you for everything you've done this year. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and your family. Oh, Merry Christmas, Jazz.